Show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Lauren Burke. And I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week is the second episode of our Silas Marner read-along. Last week, we chatted all things George Eliot and discussed the first four chapters of this amazing little book. This week, we are going to be looking at chapters 5 through 12 and digging a little deeper into some of those themes that we started to see emerge. Before we find out what happens next, Hannah, I think you had a note about the on-page, off-page relationship with money that we're going to see play out here. Yeah. So last week I mentioned an essay called The Autobiographical Matrix of Silas Marner by Lawrence J. Desner. And I'd really recommend this essay too for just like an interesting look at Eliot's relationship to money at this time. Her self-consciousness of writing for money, the disgust her publisher John Blackwood felt when she discussed money with him. The word avarice comes up in the essay, which Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, Scrooge, that's how they describe him in The Muppet's Christmas Carol. So I guess it's (laughs) not a compliment. Um, And yeah, we all know that I have very complicated feelings about George Eliot. And while I'm Mm. a fan of her work... I'm not Team Elliot, and we won't be making a Team Elliot t-shirt. And so reading about how she had friends who at this time were like destitute and were like, you're really successful, I wouldn't ask, but like, please, could you just lend me some money? And she's like, no, (laughs) I can't do, I I don't have like the funds to do it. Uh, It just reinforces those feelings because while she's saying Mm. no to her friends, She's investing like, uh, I think it was £4,000 in stocks, £4,000 in Victorian times. And it's just like, what the fuck? And she's kind of preaching. She's not really practicing what she's preaching too in her work as well. So that's the other thing. Uh, She's she's complicated. She's a complicated girl. So the essay goes on to draw comparisons to Silas, who's not quite 40, and Elliot, who is a similar age while she's writing Silas Marner, their common love of gold, hoarding, and using it to fill a hole that has not been filled by family or community. And one line Mm -hmm. from the essay that really struck me was, the lesson Silas learned when Epi comes as a replacement for his gold is the lesson Blackwood, for a time, felt George Eliot herself needed to learn. And we'll talk a bit more about autobiographical aspects later this episode and throughout the season, but I just thought I'd leave you with that for now yeah because it was on my mind (laughs) yeah (laughs) well another thing that we're gonna like just briefly discuss is the love triangle in this book which Mm. i've got a lot of i got a lot of feelings on that um and before we get to that i just want to take us on another detour into one of george Eliot's entanglements because this is guys i'm gonna say it again i know we said it last week I, I don't la- I don't have the skill to like unpack George Eliot. <laughs> there's a lot going on. There's a lot I, going on. Yeah. Just what you just said with that money business. Yeah. I, there's a lot going on. <laughs> but let's let's just like take a look at this really quickly because this woman really knew about love triangles. Um, and also like I can't get this particular story out of my head, and I need to just like stop waking my husband up in the middle of the night as I'm reading about George Eliot to like tell him stories about George Eliot. He's hmm. just like, Lauren, that is what your podcast is for. Like, please <laughs> let me live. Um, so when Marianne was 21, her father retired and they moved to Coventry to widen their social circle and, you know, possibly get this gal hitched, right? Hmm. Um, and then she meets this couple, Charles and Kara Bray. She loves them. The Brays are very intellectual. They're very pro- progressive, they're free thinkers, they question the Bible, which all sort of like puts her on this path to rethinking like her relationship with God. And, you know, then she stops going to church and it becomes the whole thing. Like Silas Marner, you know, she eventually becomes a non-believer. So Charles Bray, which like sidebar, he was a lucrative ribbon business owner, which I just, I highlighted that in my book for some reason, as I thought that would be important. I don't know why. The thing I always think is important about 
Charles Bray. He's the one that was really into phrenology, right? Mm-hmm. And would like measure her. Well, head. like all of them were. All yeah, of them they were. would just sit around measuring each other's heads at the Bray house. Yeah, they I loved it. It was all the rage. <laughs> um, Charles Bray was also known as the Don Juan of Coventry, and Marianne obviously became very smitten mm. with him. Last week, you'll remember, we discussed her relationship with John Chapman, and he was referred to as Byron. So she just, like, cannot resist a bad boy, you know, that has a nickname. Um, Marianne and Charles would go for these long walks, arm in arm. And, you know, Brenda Maddox, author of George Eliot and Love, says that Kara was unbothered. You know, it was an open relationship. Charles had affairs, and he even encouraged Kara to have them as well. Um, Charles actually had six children with his cook. Oh, good. Um, I also highlighted this quote from Brenda Maddox. She says to Carol Bray, Marianne was not a threat, but an acquisition. I thought that was interesting. Um, Kara and her sister, Sarah. Lovely. Look, if it works. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, they decided ultimately to set Marianne up with their brother, Charles, who was the author of An Inquiry Regarding the Origins of Christianity, which was just right up Marianne's alley. Unfortunately, though, um, Charles was already engaged. I guess his sisters didn't know. So he was oh, engaged no. to this they, woman. They must have known, right? And they were just like, <laughs> you can get... Just... Just An engagement is not a marriage, you know? I guess that's true. That's true. Listen, I don't know what the Brays were <laughs> up to. We weren't there. We weren't there. We don't know. We only had the cliff notes, guys. Um, so, you know, he's engaged to this woman named Elizabeth who went by Rufa. And Rufa's not only beautiful, but she's, like, super smart, too. So, of course, like, Marianne initially really hated her. Mm-hmm. Um, But then they got to talking about German theology, her favorite thing of all time. And next thing you know, Marianne is Rufa's bridesmaid at her wedding to this guy that she also likes. And then something interesting happens. And like, guys, this was all the setup for the thing, like the thing that I keep thinking about with regards to George Eliot. So at the wedding or perhaps like the lead up to the wedding, Marianne meets Rufa's 62-year-old father called Dr. Brabant, and they really hit it off. Like so much so that he's like, hey, do you want to come to my house for a holiday? And she says, yes, obviously, would love to hang out with you. She goes to his house. They read German together. They take long walks and Mm -hmm. spend lots of hours in his study, like alone together. And you know who this really upsets? Dr. Brabant's wife. And Maddox says, (laughs) I mean, obviously. (laughs) I love the way that like Brenda Maddox like waits a long time to drop that he has a wife. I was like, oh, great. Great storytelling, Brenda. (laughs) Um, I guess like if she's just been like hanging out with the Braze, though, she might be like, well, the Braze are DTF. Uh, yeah, she's like, uh, uh, maybe this guy is. Yeah. We don't Listen. know how many other married friends she has. Maybe she was like, this is just, this is how, this it, is goes. how it goes. This is how it goes. And, you know, um, listeners might be going, what? They were just reading German theology together. Guys, they were not. They were not. Um, Brenda Maddox says that Dr. Robin's wife was blind, but not so blind as to ignore what was going on. And she ends up, I think it's like even in the middle of the night, delivers this ultimatum to her husband. It's either her or me. And he's like, well, you know, I can't throw you out. Um, So he ends up throwing Marianne out and blaming the whole thing on her as well. Like, this was all her. She came on to me. Like, and um, I'm sorry. I know this is lowbrow, but like, I kind of need that book. I feel like I, you just want the real housewives of Marianne Evans. The real housewives of Coventry. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this entire chapter is called Coventry Awakening in that book. And it's like start to finish, like a riveting chapter, by the way. Um, I just, you know, I know, of course, that like George Eliot never would have written that book. Um, 
and I think that that's almost something I find really interesting about her, like just that contrast between her life and her work, right? I mean, <laughs> it's so extreme. I don't agree. I think she does write about this stuff. I think she writes about it in a, not in a smutty way. In I think it's in the subtext. Okay, I'm not sure if I believe you. This sounds like it might just be a clever way to get me to read Middlemarch, but you know what? Okay, fine. We'll go with that. The smut is in the subtext. Let's go ahead and jump into Silas Marner. Now, last week we left off with Dunsey Cass having just robbed Silas Marner and disappearing into the mist. Chapter five confirms that Silas Marner is in fact not dead in the stone pit as Dunsey thought, but has been pottering nearby just like in the dark, getting some thread, minding his own business, not thinking about the fact that somebody might just wander into his house because it hasn't happened yet, right? There's a really good comparison in the book where it's like a miner who has spent 40 years underground isn't going to be immediately concerned about the mine falling on his head because it hasn't for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, anyway, I liked that line very much. (laughs) So... He cannot work out when he might have been robbed and he begins to think over which of his neighbours could have done it and settles on the local poacher, Jem Rodney, who he believes is generally disreputable and proof of this is that Jem once stayed too long to light his pipe at Silas's fireside. Like, I need, ago. I need to know, like, how long that is. Is it, like, two minutes? Is it 15 minutes? How long is it? How long is it? Like is it like an hour? Based on the conversation <laughs> <laughs> that happens at the rainbow... <laughs> We'll How long see in a minute. Is that? I think it could have been like an afternoon. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, Silas rushes to the pub, the Rainbow, in the hope of finding someone to help him, like the clergyman or the constable or even Squire Cass, because in the evenings, like all of all of the men are at the pub, basically. Chapter six gives us a glimpse of the goings on in the Rainbow in the run up to Silas's arrival, and most of the important people that Silas would hope to run into are actually at a party. So it's the less notable regulars that we find sitting around the fire, like the farrier, the butcher, the landlord. And they are having an argument about a cow. Yeah, and a as, lot of as the, you do. As you do. And I, a lot of the chapter is this argument about the cow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then Mr. Macy, who I think is the tailor, he tells a story about the Lamases, which is a local family. They're first arriving in the neighbourhood and it's just punctuated with all of this like familiarity from the landlord and the butcher, uh, from the landlord and the butcher who are just like, oh, tell us the bit when this happens and tell us a- the bit when that happens because these are just conversations that they have every day. You know, it's the same yeah. stories. It might not be a cow that that, it might be a sheep they're arguing about. But like the format is going to be the same. She's giving us local country color, which yeah. I appreciate, but also I'm frustrated by because I would like to be getting sex as well. So, you know, that's all I'm saying, George Eliot. That's, that's part of our problem. <laughs> she's had like such a strong image of like that scene. And then like Silas walks in, but instead of announcing gold, it's like a sexy Silas. And it actually it's the beginning <laughs> of like a porno. <laughs> interesting scene (laughs) (laughs) so the conversation turns to ghosts with the farrier saying I'm not going to do an accent okay I was wondering sorry no I'm not Uh, if if ghosts want me to believe in them let them leave off skulking in the dark and in lone places let them come where there's company and candles so the group is kind of I think it's a fair point Yeah. so it's kind of that like you know, the the general consensus is stuff happens that you can't explain. And some people think mm-hmm. that it's ghosts and some people aren't comfortable thinking about ghosts and some people mm-hmm. don't believe in them. But it's just setting up like, this is a community or a neighbourhood where the supernatural is kind of accepted yeah. and unknown things happening is kind of accepted mm-hmm. and vague ideas about getting what you deserve or things coming back to you. It's, you know, they are religious. They all go to church every week. But at the same time, ghosts exist and right. witches exist. And I, that's what like one of my favorite parts of the story, actually. It's a way of thinking or a way of being. And I know that there were some comments 
And like you were saying about it, there's like an intellectual judgment that George Eliot is like casting upon these rural people. But I think like there is an openness to not knowing the answer to something that mm-hmm. actually, you know, as the as the story develops, is like a compliment to them. Mm-hmm. Because they are so used to not understanding everything and things kind of just happen and things work out. And so it's like, there's a good and bad side to it. And I think that George Eliot intentionally is like, here are some of the ways that it can be a problem, but then later, and here are some of the ways that actually it's a positive thing yeah. for Silas and Effie. And then, you know, right on time with the start of for chapter seven, right? <laughs> <laughs> Silas Marner walks in and everyone is thoroughly spooked. This is handled really well, I think, in the film adaptations because you're just like, ah, <laughs> he's a ghost. They've just yeah, been talking about ghosts. Ah, there he is. The long pipes gave a simultaneous movement, like the antennae of startled insects, and every man present, not excepting even the sceptical farrier, had an impression that he saw, not Silas Marner in the flesh, but an apparition. So he starts yelling about them seizing Jim Rodney, and his sudden disheveled appearance takes everyone back for a second. They're like, what is going on? Jim Rodney, who has stood right there, denies it. Jim Rodney, who is Jim Broadbent, I believe, in the movie. Um, But, you know, Jim has an alibi. He -hmm. has been in the rainbow all night. All night. He's like, guys, I have been drinking all night. Okay. (laughs) In the rainbow. And by the way, I used to go to a bar named Rainbow. It didn't have the didn't have the W at the end. Did it have a farrier, a butcher, a tailor? A candlestick maker. Um, only on fancy dress nights. Okay. Like not, yeah, <laughs> not on the regular. <laughs> Silas, moved by his own memories of being falsely accused, apologizes sincerely to Jim. He says he won't accuse him. He won't accuse anybody. And he will only try to think about where his money could be. Because of his bad eyesight, it suggested that somebody go back to his cottage and help him look, which I was like, good suggestion. Yeah. They're you know proactive. What? I feel like they, they really are. are just like, we're going to help this guy out. This, they were helpful. And this yeah, weird guy. these guys were on it. They were like, we love a mystery. We're all drunk. Mm. Let's get in on it. <laughs> the unexpected kindness and trust that he receives begins to work on Silas, though he hardly notices. Our consciousness rarely registers the beginning of a growth within us any more than without us. There have been many circulations of the sap before we detect the smallest sign of the bud. In chapter eight, we rejoin the Cass family. Godfrey returns from Mr. Osgood's party at midnight. This is the party that everyone was at. Remember, it's the party that Nancy was at. He didn't want to turn up all muddy from the hunt. So this is where all of the the biggies are. All the posh people go to the party. All the posh people. And he comes back and Dancy is not home. And Godfrey's like, okay, you know, it seems fine. He's just super preoccupied with thoughts of Nancy to be bothered about, like, where his layabout brother is. Although it does occur to him that he might not have sold the horse. And so he, like, doesn't mm-hmm. want to come home. And then the next morning, thoughts of his brother are pushed even further away because news of the robbery have has spread. And Godfrey, along with many others, is just caught up in the investigation around the stone pit. The heavy rain of the night before uh, has just washed away all of the tracks, all of the footprints, and basically any evidence, except it has revealed a tinderbox that is found half buried in the mud outside of the cottage. A small minority shook their heads and intimated their opinion that it was not a robbery to have much light thrown on it by tinderboxes that Master Marner's tail had a queer look with it, and that such things had been known as a man's doing himself a mischief, and then setting the justice to look for the doer. But when questioned closely as to their grounds for this opinion and what Master Marner had to gain by such false pretenses, they only shook their heads as before and observed that there was no knowing what some folks counted gain. Moreover, that everybody had a right to their own opinions grounds or no grounds, and that the weaver, 
as everybody knew, was partly crazy. Eventually, the tinderbox is connected to a peddler who had travelled through the village about a month before, and the peddler had mentioned using a tinderbox to light his pipe and also once stopped by the cottage for a drink. And because he had a swarthy foreignness of complexion, which boded little Mm. honesty, obviously it's got to be him, right? They're like, listen, we saw a brown person come through here. Probably that guy. If it's not Jim Rodney, it's got to be mm-hmm. it's got to be the peddler, unnamed, unnamed so con- foreigner. <laughs> they're trying to like get a description together, right, to identify him. And the conversation mm-hmm. turns to whether or not he wore an earring because he sold earrings, so it's safe to assume that he would have had an earring. Mm-hmm. Of course. Everyone who heard the question, not having any distinct image of the peddler as without earrings, immediately had an image of him with earrings, larger or smaller as the case might be, and the image was presently taken for a vivid recollection, so that the glazier's wife, a well-intentioned woman, not given to lying, and whose house was among the cleanest in the village, was ready to declare as sure as ever she meant to take the sacrament the very next Christmas that was ever coming, that she had seen big earrings in the shape of the young moon in the peddler's two ears, while Ginny Oates, the cobbler's daughter, being a more imaginative person, stated not only that she had seen them too, but that they had made her blood creep, as it did at that very moment while there she stood So by the time the villagers are done with the story, it's determined that the peddler had to have done it, had in fact been lingering outside of Silas's cottage, and only somebody as blind as Silas Marner would have missed him lurking out there, and that Silas Marner is lucky that this guy didn't kill him. Now I will say something that I really appreciate about this. One, I think the way that George Eliot shows you through the dialogue and the conversation of this story about the peddler just it's getting away from people and mm-hmm. uh, the way they're kind of all doubling down on it and reconfirming it and like the bias and just showing it. Um, but also it's set in this like kind of old timey out of time world. Right. And I know for a fact that even as early as the 14th century, crime was handled like in a really specific way in communities. And so you'd have like, Uh, a tithing group of about 10 men and basically if someone committed a crime in your group and you didn't report it or stop it then you were liable as well either to like pay for the damage or to have a share of the punishment and so what would happen a lot is that newcomers strangers passing through people that traveled would get blamed for crimes because if someone outside of your tithing group has done it then it's not your fault and that's immediately why having a stranger or having someone who isn't known to the community even if we're talking like hundreds of years later it's so ingrained in the way that people respond to crime and think about like who could be it couldn't be my neighbor right Mm -hmm. because we watch each other we hold each other accountable like and we know that's not true but an outsider someone like silas someone like the peddler much mm-hmm. easier to just say it's this person it's and like them. that really yeah yeah really struck me when i was reading it so this chapter actually made me appreciate the fact that the book wasn't a mystery and that elliot had already told us you know who stole the gold because um it's more about exposing the mindset of the villagers how they immediately jump to the conclusion about the foreigner versus one of the most privileged guys in town and then They even take it a step further and cast doubt on Silas himself, you know, asking how much gold could this guy possibly have anyway and questioning his mindset. It's very interesting um, and true to life to like watch how it all gets away from them. So meanwhile, Godfrey uh, learns that Duncey did actually sell his horse, right? But that the horse also died in a hedge. Messed it up. And Duncey disappeared. Mm-hmm. So both Bryce, who the horse was sold to, and Godfrey wrongly assume that Duncey, having killed the horse, is just hiding out from Godfrey and working up the courage to tell his father about the money. Um, and Godfrey is like, 
I need to talk to my dad about all of this stuff. And also I should probably just like tell him about being married at the same time because yeah, it's going to suck. Come clean. It's going to yeah. suck either way. But you know, in chapter Get it 9, all out at once. <laughs> yeah, he's so resolved. At the end of chapter 8, I was like, okay, chapter 9, he's going to do it. Uh and so he wakes up. He goes downstairs for breakfast and he lays out almost the whole truth to his dad, who as we can see from the last two chapters, he's just a knob. Like, he's not a nice person. And it makes me think of, like, the reverse of Squire Hamley from Wives and Daughters. Mm -hmm. Because he's a squire, basically. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, they're the same. Two sides of a coin. So, Godfrey's dad, uh, Squire Cass, tells Godfrey that he actually should be doing more to help him. Uh, For one, he could marry Nancy Latimer. And that... Godfrey should just leave it to him to make all of the arrangements and he'll handle it. But Godfrey is like, no, no, a man should take care of this himself, right? And getting married is a thing that he should do. Doesn't mention he's already taken care of it himself, which is why he can't take care of it again. The squire sends him off. He's like, listen, you've got to sell Duncey's horse. You've got to get married. Go off and do it. It's a very Alan Sugar-ish send off he's like get out of my sight get out of my board boardroom the situation's uh, <laughs> like completely unresolved which i thought was so funny it was like i'm gonna fix this and then it's like it, i'm actually not because he's not he's not he won't listen right no. and so no wonder godfrey can't tell him anything because like mm-hmm. the way his dad reacts to everything he says um yeah so godfrey is then like okay so duncey's gonna come back and duncey will probably mention the marriage but also, now my dad's going to mention the potential marriage to Nancy Latimer to people. And then I'm going to be forced to admit I'm married because of that. Yeah. So on both sides now, his family are like scuppering his stuff. But he still can't just admit that no. he is married. No, no. <laughs> um, And I love this description of the squire. His person showed marks of habitual neglect. His dress was slovenly. And yet there was something in the presence of the old squire, distinguishable from that of the ordinary farmers in the parish, who were perhaps every whit as refined as he, but having slouched their way through life with a consciousness of being in the vicinity of their betters, wanted that self-possession and authoritativeness of voice and carriage which belonged to a man who thought of superiors as remote existences, with whom he had personally little more to do than with America or the stars. The squire had been used to parish homage all his life, used to the presupposition that his family, his tankards, and everything that was his were the oldest and best, and that as he never associated with any gentry higher than himself, his opinion was not disturbed by comparison. In chapter 10, we catch up with the investigation into the missing gold. What an investigation it is. Um, the tinderbox leads to nothing. They're yeah. just like, well, we found it. We don't know. We got we got this one piece of evidence. Uh, you know, we don't have fingerprint technology yet. So <laughs> it is what it is. Um, as we know, it was a coincidence that the tinderbox was there in the first place. And because nobody actually knows the peddler or anything about him, and get carried away, filling in the blanks with racial stereotypes. It has not been possible to apprehend absolutely anyone. Nobody seems uh, that concerned about Duncey being missing because it's not the first time it's happened. And Squire Cass, who didn't want him to come home at all, like hasn't made a big deal out of it. They're like, you know yeah, what? He's, he's just probably like downplaying it. He's got in trouble. He's run off. He'll probably come back in a few weeks and blah, blah, blah. So nobody connects that he's disappeared, you know, to the day of the robbery. Like, that's what he does. As the weeks go by, the robbery becomes just another topic of conversation at the Rainbow. So, you know, it has given them some good drinking Mm -hmm. fodder, at least. Yeah. For the next 20 years. Oh, yeah. They're like, remember the time the, the gold went missing? Great. And they were all there as well. So they can <laughs> yeah. all argue about the details. No, he was wearing a brown waistcoat. 
Right? He just appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> um, for Silas, though, the loss is like a death and he grieves his gold and the purpose it gave him. And this doesn't go unnoticed in the village where people had once thought of him as like this cunning creature unwilling to help others. Uh, now They now see him in a new light, someone who is unable to help himself. His wealthier neighbors send food parcels of like black pudding and pork and those who can afford no gift, like try consoling him by greeting him when they see him. They call on him. Just making friends. They're like, we're, so- yeah. sorry. we're, sorry, you, dude. Yeah. we're here for you. Um, it doesn't always land like as intended, but, you know, they're trying. Both Mr. Macy and another neighbor, Miss Winthrop, the wheelwright's wife try and convince him to go to church. They're like, that's going to help. Uh, Mrs. Winthrop even takes him some lard cake from the church and has her seven-year-old son, Aaron, sing him a carol. But Silas is unmoved. This is a very funny scene in the in the mm. movie as well, by the way. <laughs> I suppose one reason why we are seldom able to comfort our neighbors with our words is that our goodwill gets adulterated in spite of ourselves before it can pass our lips. We can send black puddings and pettitoes without giving them a flavor of our own egoism. But language is a stream that is almost sure to smack of a mingled soil. There was a fair proportion of kindness in Ravelot, but it was often of a beery and bungling sort and took the shape least allied to the complimentary and hypocritical. Christmas comes to Ravelot, and despite the merriment in the village, Silas spends the day all alone. Over at the Red House, nobody in the Cass family remarks on Dunsey's continued absence or just like, whatever. Except Godfrey, who has this mental exchange with a personified and very vocal, like, anxiety in the mm. hopes that Dunsey won't be home before the New Year's Eve party. It's like, ah, stay back. Just it's such an asshole. This man is great at living with secrets. Um, Godfrey doesn't know how long he can bribe Dunsey to stay quiet. And he's been looking forward to spending an evening with Nancy. Yeah, it's like, oh, just if this guy doesn't come home for New Year's Eve, I can still like. I can have, have one more day. One yeah. more day. That's what he's just living. His, all of day. his life decisions are like, if I can just hold out a little bit longer, I can go to this mm-hmm. next party with Nancy Lamiser. I mm-hmm. think Silas Manor should be adapted for like college students. A hundred percent. Because Godfrey is such a frat boy. <laughs> <laughs> so in chapter 11, we're finally introduced to Nancy Lamiser, who we mm-hmm. learn has made it clear to Godfrey multiple times she will not marry him. So we're finally getting it from her point of view. Yeah, I had Uh, like whiplash when I I was like, what? (laughs) She's not into it. She's like, one, he's hot and cold. So sometimes he's like super Mm -hmm. interested in her, like super keen, won't leave her alone. And then other times he's just like ignores her, pretends like he's not like, so she's not into that. And also he just doesn't seem to be like a good guy. And like Nancy, Nancy lives by her beliefs. She's very idealistic. Like, she has a moral compass. She isn't always right, but mm-hmm. you know, she lives intentionally and she can tell that Godfrey does not. So yeah. she's like, keep this fuck boy away from me. So amidst the hustle and the bustle of the women getting ready for the party, we're introduced to Nancy's aunt Osgood, the Miss Guns, and Nancy's sister Priscilla. We learn that not only did Nancy previously turn down her cousin Gilbert Osgood, Gilbert Osgood's proposal because they are cousins. So, I mean, that I gave Nancy a big tick for that one on the decision making. <laughs> uh, I was back and forth on it. I was like, well, on one hand, on the other hand. Ah. It's just funny. She's like, she didn't marry him because they were cousins. And I was like, yeah. oh, I, I assumed that would have been fine for her. But I guess not. <laughs> no. And then... Despite being really very beautiful, Nancy is what some would consider coarse. The Miss Guns could see nothing to criticise except her hands, which bore the traces of butter making, cheese crushing and even still coarser work. But Miss Nancy was not ashamed of that, for even while she was dressing she narrated to her aunt how she and Priscilla had packed their boxes yesterday yesterday 
because this morning was baking morning, and since they were leaving home, it was desirable to make a good supply of meat pies for the kitchen. Side note about this whole scene, I really appreciated her sister Priscilla and her whole bit where she insists that she is ugly and is like, the Miss Guns get it because they're, they're butters as yeah. well. <laughs> so that was another part in the book where I was like, ah, more of it. What's going on here? <laughs> so funny. <laughs> yeah, us ugly girls. Yeah, got to stick together. And the Miss Guns are like, excuse me? <laughs> So Nancy goes downstairs and uh, she sits between Godfrey and Mr. Crackenthorpe and has this sort of Lizzie Bennet moment where she's looking around her and she's like, oh, to think I could have been mistress of all this. But then she's like, but actually, like the money and the social standing and being Mrs. Cass, because Godfrey is such a shit, I just, I don't want it. Like it is more important to me to be married to someone who is not an asshole. Yeah, I was very team Nancy at this moment. Yes. I'm going to flop. I'm going to flop later, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's quite a flop. So eventually, after some interference from Mr. Crackenthorpe, Nancy and Godfrey get up to dance and we do witness a bit of a flirt between them, especially because Nancy's dress gets ripped and they're forced to go and sit down on the sidelines, which sets everyone's tongues wagging because they're like, oh, off they go, young love, including mm-hmm. Godfrey, who is a simpleton. And he's like, mate, she wants to get me alone. Fantastic. <laughs> She's like, no, my dress, it is ripped. Like, please get my sister. And he's like, <laughs> want a kiss? Um, so Godfrey asks Nancy, sincerely, if I changed my ways, I don't know what he is thinking, but he's like, if I, I change my ways. I don't know what he's thinking. <laughs> If I could, like, change who I am as a person to my core, would you uh, forgive me? And she is just like, yeah, I I shouldn't have to forgive you. Like, mm-hmm. you shouldn't have been an asshole to begin with. That's yeah. the situation. But by the time Priscilla comes over, they are, like, they're kind of, like, back together again. Yeah, and can I just say that I was... I read this uh, also while watching Love is Blind, like Mm. in the background. And this is like a very typical conversation someone would have on Love is Blind, by the way. Yes. Like if I just changed completely for you, would you be into me? I'm like, why did this every week? Yeah. And it's like, yes, (laughs) I would. (laughs) We inherently don't like each other or agree, but um, sure. Let's give it a shot. Yeah. Now let's get into chapter 12, which is the last up for this week. While Godfrey Cass was taking draughts of forgetfulness from the sweet presence of Nancy, willingly losing all sense of that hidden bond which at other moments galled and fretted him so as to mingle irritation with the very sunshine, Godfrey's wife was walking with slow, uncertain steps through the snow-covered Ravelo lanes, carrying her child in her arms. I love that opening paragraph so much, the impending doom like what's about to happen? Like what it what's happening? Everything. Everything is about to happen. The story is like about to break open. And it's just it's getting very, very Eastenders here. Mm. Or the arches. Or the arches. Even. Yeah. The same, Eastenders same here thing. are the arches. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there would be a great party at the Red House on New Year's Eve, she knew. Her husband would be smiling and smiled upon hiding her existence in the darkest corner of his heart. But she would mar his pleasure. She would go in her dingy rags, with her faded face, once as handsome as the best, with her little child that had its father's hair and eyes, and disclose herself to the squire as his eldest son's wife. Despite the weather, heavy snow, and the long journey she's taken, Molly cannot fight her need for laudanum, I can never say a lot of them. You said it. You I did it. say it, didn't it? Yeah. Believe in yourself. <laughs> and when she takes it, is unable to fight the drowsiness that the drug brings on or her own fatigue and the cold as she trudges through the snow. She lies down, unable to walk another step, unconscious of the cold. And her child wakes up. And when she's unable to rouse Molly, she just like finds herself distracted by a light in the distance and follows it 
the same way that Dunsey Cass followed the light just weeks before to Silas Marner's cottage and the warm hearth inside. Now, the child is able to walk straight in because Silas is still awake and in the midst of a cataleptic seizure at the front door. His neighbors half-jokingly told him that hearing the old year rung out and the new year rung in was good luck and it might bring his money back, which again, kind of bringing back that sort of Mm. like folklore mysticism that I like that bit. So he's been getting up and looking outside, waiting to hear the bells. And when he regains consciousness, he turns and he sees the child, but his bad eyesight means at first he thinks it's something else. Gold. His own gold brought back to him as mysteriously as it had been taken away. He felt his heart begin to beat violently, and for a few moments he was unable to stretch out his hand and grasp the restored treasure. The heap of gold seemed to glow and get larger beneath his agitated gaze. He leaned forward at last and stretched forth his hand. But instead of the hard coin with the familiar resisting outline his fingers encountered soft, warm curls. In utter amazement, Silas fell on his knees and bent his head low to examine the marvel. It was a sleeping child, a round, fair thing, with soft yellow rings all over its head. The child wakes up crying and Silas instinctively begins to comfort her. And Silas realizes she would have been walking out in the snow and goes to the door where she cries out, Mammy. He follows the quickly disappearing tracks and there, half covered in the snow, he finds a body. And that's where we're going to leave Silas and the mysterious child for the time being. Yeah, I love that chapter. Great. I mean, great. What a what a thing. New Year's Eve to just turn around and find a child in your house. I mean, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. I would be scared. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I did want to pick up on a thread from last week's episode and our conversation around the fairy tale elements of Silas Marner. And I promise that I won't go on about it as much this time. I will in future episodes again. Sorry, but not Mm. this time. Uh, Lauren, would you read this quote for me? It's from uh, Susan Stewart's Genres of Work, The Folktale and Silas Marner. Elliot calls forward many particular references to English folklore. For example, she emphasizes Silas's use of the makeshift jack for cooking over his fire, recalling the English household fairy Wagga the Wah, who likes to perch on the jack and who can be appeased and entreated with bits of his favorite food, pork, the kind of morsel that the ladies of Ravelo often share with Silas. Um, she then goes on to say that uh, this all basically reinforces the other parts of the novel where Silas is treated as a useful gnome or brownie. Yeah, he's a cre- he's not a person yet. He's mm-hmm. he is a creature. And yeah, I just love that image of Silas Marner the gnome being fed his bits of pork at Christmas and being encouraged to come to church. And I think it's a really nice step on from um the image of Silas Marner the crone. And it carries on that idea of wanting to keep him on your good side. But what I'd really like to talk about this week, because we've had so much Godfrey stuff, uh, is Mm. sympathy and who deserves it. And I know that you're going to have a lot of thoughts on this. I mean, (laughs) yes. You know Godfrey is going to get it from me, like throughout the rest of the book. (laughs) So, uh, in an essay, which we will be referencing a lot this episode, called Similarity Within Dissimilarity, the dual structure of Silas Marner, Bruce K. Martin says that George Eliot sets up sympathy as the primary norm for her novel and introduces Silas as prone to sympathy, yet unable to either exercise it or to receive it. And I thought that was, that line was like really spot on. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm realizing now that it's my sympathy towards Silas Marner that draws me to him, not unlike the way the villagers of Ravelo are drawn to him after the robbery. Yeah. Side, side note as well, I don't know whether or not the story of a man in his 30s having mysterious seizures that nobody understands would have hit me the same way. 
if I had read this prior to 2021. So I do mm-hmm. recognize that there is like an element of right place and right time with me reading Silas Marner because I think mm-hmm. I really related to a lot of his early story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so Elliot wields sympathy so gracefully, I think, like who shows it, who receives it and who deserves it. And I think we can agree that poor old, nearsighted, lonely, misunderstood Silas Marner deserves our sympathy. Right? For sure. And I'm curious, is this same sympathy that is being afforded to Silas in the wake of the robbery going to be shown to another character in need? So I am, of course, talking about Godfrey's secret wife, Molly. And as a reader, I'm certainly sympathetic to her. Mm. I definitely more so than the villagers. And I have to say, I love that Silas Marner is a short book, but man... I am like just mad that we actually don't get more on this Godfrey Molly Nancy situation because I think that that is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think actually like there there's so much more that could have been explored there. And also if anyone knew about love triangles, I think that we have established that it was George Eliot. Oh man, you are gonna, you're just, you are gonna love Middlemarch so much. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many love triangles in Middlemarch. Um, uh, I mean, Molly doesn't even. I think the sad thing is that, like, we've seen we see the restorative power of Ravelo, and Molly doesn't spoil a spoiler. She doesn't get there, right? Yeah, yeah, she doesn't. Because George kills her. <laughs> She's ah. like, you carried the child to the cottage. You're done. Your purpose has been, yeah. This journey on New Year's Eve was a premeditated act of vengeance which she had kept in her heart ever since Godfrey, in a fit of passion, had told her he would sooner die than acknowledge her as his wife. It is seldom that the miserable can help regarding their misery as a wrong inflicted by those who were less miserable. Molly knew that the cause of her dingy rags was not her husband's neglect but the demon opium to whom she was enslaved, body and soul, except in the lingering mother's tenderness that refused to give him her hungry child. She knew this well, and yet in the moments of wretched, unbenumbed consciousness, the sense of her want and degradation transformed itself continually into bitterness towards Godfrey. He was well off, and if she had her rights, she would be well off too. It is it is a really interesting choice cutting to Molly out of the blue like that. And I mm-hmm. I think it, it does say a lot about how Elliot relates to the character, who is a woman on the edge of society. She's an outcast just like Silas Marner, but for different reasons. And Desna says, uh, no stock figure, no simple agency of the plot. Molly knows that opium not her husband's neglect was the cause of her downfall. Yet this knowledge does not preclude the sense of her want and degradation from being transformed continually into bitterness towards Godfrey. George Eliot is aware from what source other than her own real or imagined experience of the interplay between reason and emotion, of that shifting borderline between consciousness and unconsciousness, of the oscillating transformations between feelings of guilt and those of wronged innocence, drugged, repudiated, an outcast, but embittered more with herself than with others, Molly sinks into the snow, choosing the easy pillow of annihilation. All that remains in the instinctive clutch of her arms towards the child. The anxieties George Eliot suffered find expression in an intense in an intensified but harmless projection. The suicidal impulse is allowed to overwhelm Molly. George Eliot tries out how it feels and sounds to imagine and articulate her own worst fears. I thought that was so interesting. Yeah. And it goes, there is more, like it, the essay goes on to talk about George Eliot's feelings around uh, being a parent and, and parents. But that has mm-hmm. to wait until the last set of chapters yeah. because it's like you don't want to spoil any of the the rest of the story. But mm-hmm. yeah, there, there is so much like angsty George Eliot in here, and it yeah. makes sense because she had such a shit year the year before, and she's like, 
I'm going to dump it into this fairy tale about an old blind man. <laughs> She's not all right, is she? No, I, that's what I'm saying, <laughs> Hannah. That's what I'm saying. No, I, I agree. George Elliot is not all right. It's not all right. Um, maybe now is a good time to just get into God for you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit, because he's a mess. And um, one thing I really responded to in the book is how in the beginning, I think George almost sets you up to believe, or maybe this is me. This is me jumping to this conclusion. Like, oh, you've got two brothers. One's good, one's bad. Oh, no, she... I think what she's setting up is like the way that they are viewed in Ravelo. In Ravelo, yeah. And then you come to realize they're both so terrible. Yeah. They're both awful. And there's, there's not four a good of one, them, guys. But we don't yeah, care about the, the other two. <laughs> we don't care about the others. I always forget about them because, yeah, they, <laughs> what are they up to? Um, so earlier I had said that I wish, you know, we had more of the Nancy, Molly, Godfrey dynamic. Mm. And where I really felt this was in chapter 11, mm-hmm. while Nancy and Godfrey were interacting at the ball. Like what that whole business, it's like so <laughs> intense and it's like back and forth and there's like so much going on. She's fed up with how he's blowing hot and cold. Obviously, he's now being honest with her about Molly, but. He's just like also not taking any responsibility for the situation, which is entirely of his own making. Mm-hmm. And yeah. one line in particular that I highlighted because he sounds like a guy on Tinder who is like playing the field and then somehow like shifts blame to like the women for two timing him. Like he just like makes up a whole situation in his head. It's like, well, this is her fault. Um, so this quote, I mean, the, this whole section was wild, but this quote, I was like, I cannot let this stand. Um, he says to Nancy, you're very hard hearted, Nancy, said Godfrey pettishly. You might encourage me to be a better fellow. I'm very miserable, but you've no feeling. I've definitely I, gotten that text. That quote is like one of the many quotes that made me go, well, this story can be, we can do a modern adaptation of this story. Mm-hmm. 100%. Still works. So, yeah. But that whole section, completely wild. Guys, just read chapter 11. If you don't read the book, just read chapter 11. It's my and 14, which we'll talk about next week. But <laughs> those are the two standout, two standout chapters. Amazing. I do think, I think Godfrey is really interesting, though. Like, I enjoy reading the Godfrey oh, yeah. stuff because he's for sure an arsehole who just does not think he is an arsehole. And Elliot mm-hmm. also doesn't seem to, like, be able to make her mind up about him. Which is why mm-hmm. I think we are getting those chapters from Dunsey and Molly's mm-hmm. point of view. Like, poor Godfrey is just surrounded by these horrible people. Like, his dad's horrible, and his brother is horrible, and his wife is horrible. <laughs> and all he wants is to just marry Nancy, you know, who he actually loves. And his brother forced him to marry Molly. We're yeah. told. We're no told. E- no evidence. I mean, listen, of it. listen. I just, grain of salt. Well, that's the thing. Because George Eliot doesn't say Duncey was forced to, uh, Godfrey was forced to marry Molly because of Duncey. It's given to us with Godfrey being like, yeah, and Duncey like probably forced, like Duncey probably made that happen. So like in his head, he won't even take responsibility for marrying (laughs) his wife. A hundred percent. Which is wild. So no, I don't have a lot of patience for him. And Bruce K. Martin says that by narrating lengthy sections from the point of view of Duncey, which is chapter four from last week's episode, and Molly, which is chapter 12 from this week, the inside view distances the reader from the characters by confirming the shallowness of their motives, their pitilessness towards Godfrey, and the intolerability of his position. She, Elliot relieves Godfrey of further obligations towards his wife by rendering as futile the possibility of aiding her in her addiction to opium. This is a woman who is like in the midst of an addiction that is killing her, that Godfrey Mm -hmm. could never have pulled her out of it, Mm -hmm. I think is what he's getting at. And like, it, it is such a, it's such a bold choice to go in so hard on the character and then not explore it any further. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's all I have to say about it. That's just like, here. <laughs> just like, okay. Yeah. I mean, I was getting 
from from this set of chapters, I was getting so much wives and daughters, and like mm-hmm. poor old like mm-hmm. Oswald or what's his name. Oh, uh, Os- yeah, yeah, yeah. Osgood. 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 Osborne. Osgood. Osborne. No, Osgood's Osborne. the family in this. Oh, I can't yeah, remember. Right. The wet one. The wet one. <laughs> the wet one. It's Oswald, <laughs> Osgood, Osborne. It's in the same. Ozzy Osborne. Um, yeah, the one with the French wife. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, she can't do anything about being French. And Molly can't right. do anything about being addicted to opium. Yeah. So, the 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 same. The yeah. same. So Martin goes on to say that Elliot's effort to depict young Cass as a victim approaches the ludicrous when in chapter three, she has snuff the family spaniel anticipate a caress from Godfrey after hiding upon the approach of Dunstan and questions whether or not we should be undisturbed at the thought of Nancy being Godfrey's prize. All he needs is for his wife to accidentally take too much opium and then, you know, his brother to die or disappear and then Nancy is his. Like, are we rooting for this? This actually brought me back to Love is Blind, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> because there are men on that show that they desperately want something to happen. They they want something bad to happen. Eye drops guy. Um, well, there's that guy. Well, Cole? Are you... Yeah, Cole? yeah, yeah. I think Cole's oh, a Godfrey. Cole is a Godfrey. One he's a Godfrey. Heart, that's such a good shout. <laughs> It would be so easy to read Godfrey on face value and be like, George Eliot thinks he's fine. But it's mm-hmm. so much of it is coming from Godfrey. I think she is just yeah. really in character when she's writing a lot of this stuff. She really is in character. Um, I think when I first started reading the story, I was like, oh, this is so interesting because I haven't read a story from like a male perspective and I don't really know mm-hmm. how long. And um, I haven't really read a story I feel that isn't dealing with like women's issues in some way for so long. But then when you get inside Godfrey's head, you're like, oh, well, this this is really unpacking this kind of person. And that is it's an that's essential work. It's essential work. And also she could have written about this situation from the point of view as a woman. But I think it's so valuable for her to spend that time in Godfrey's head. Mm-hmm. And like we yeah. get you, we get a chapter from Nancy. We get a chapter from Molly. But really, it's yeah. about kind of exploring like what is driving a man like this to behave. One thing that I think lets the book down, I know. <laughs> One thing, um, I don't, I don't think her like n- narrative voice, like the when she steps out of the characters and then it's the narrator and it's very much yeah, like yeah. George Eliot is speaking. I think that's very miss, uh, very messy. It's all over the place. It's not consistent. I think that's something that, like, Jane Austen is very good at. I think it's mm-hmm. one of the reasons that, like, you know, even in Emma, where you're kind of, like, your viewpoint of the book is completely shaped by what Emma knows. And so as Emma learns more things, the narrate like, what the narrator is telling you kind of shifts alongside it. Whereas I think Elliot, she wants to comment as herself, but then she also wants to comment as if she's, like an old man telling you a fairy tale around the fire yeah. and it's it's just inconsistent and i think that something that would have helped tie all of these kind of disparate chapters from different people's point of views together is just her figuring out who the narrator is is it her mm-hmm. is it someone else and editing yes a hundred percent and also i think you know i mean this is going to sound so basic but like her um like just as we were pulling quotes for the voice actor mm. like you notice her run on sentences like she has got colons and semicolons and dashes and lots of commas like these are long sentences and not they're beautiful they're beautiful bits of description but she's not concise so like mm. austin's narrators are so snappy and concise that it's really easy to sort of differentiate that narrator voice and the character voice too really allows you to jump back and forth so easily which is why austin's such a like um visual writer and, mm-hmm. and adapts so well i think is part of it and why i think maybe elliot adapts a little less well but i think silas marner is a good adaptation but she does have all of this like beautiful narration and internal conflict that's missing. So that's it for this week. In our next episode, we'll learn what happens to Molly and her child, 
Will Godfrey admit to being married? Will Godfrey admit to any of his mistakes? I, I mean, spoiler, probably not. <laughs> um, we will be sure to post links to all the articles that we've mentioned today in our discussion thread. And Hannah, if our good listeners would like to join in the conversation, where can they find us? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, in English and Spanish, wherever you get your usual literary fix. Mm-hmm.